Welcome to Step Up, the podcast where we learn to advocate like a woman. I'm your host, Ellen Troxclair. Each week, we talk to a different leader about how she became active in policy and politics. Whether it's joining an organization or running for office, I hope you come away feeling not only supported and inspired, but determined to step up and be a part of shaping your community and country. Troxclair, and I'm here with the woman, the myth, the legend, Lisa Nelson. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Um, Lisa has done it all, and I feel like you were a uh, powerhouse female in policy and politics before it was even a thing. You know, like before it was a like now it's now now everybody's like, oh, we need more women involved in in policy, and you were like, hey, I've been I've been here all along. Um, so Lisa is the head of ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is a an organization for state legislators from across the country. They put together a model policy, um, they further free markets and limited government and all of those good things. So she's extremely impactful uh, in that capacity and really has a, has a nationwide presence, but also has been involved in, in all kinds of other things throughout her illustrious career. So thank you, Lisa, for joining us. Well, I'm just thrilled to be here, Ellen, and I think you are the woman, the myth, the legend <laughs> of the city of Austin, Texas, who stood alone against the uh, other city councilmen representing free markets and limited government. So I applaud you. Oh, well, thanks. It's um, it's a, It feels like such a lonely battle sometimes. Why, why, why is that? Why does it seem like conservative women are so overrun and like losing this culture war um, constantly from the left. Uh, why, why, why is that? I think that conservative women tend to uh, operate on a uh, on a kind of trajectory of just getting it done and and you know kind of mm-hmm. take no prisoners, do what you're mm-hmm. working, work on what you're working on, um, you know, commit to the projects that you've that you've engaged in, and do your job, and don't uh, don't play the victim, don't play the the martyr, just do your job, enjoy it, and have fun, and that's been my motto ever since I got involved in politics. I. I graduated from the University of California at Berkeley in 1983. How, uh, how Ronald did you, Reagan was president. How how did you survive? Uh, did you were you did you identify as a conservative at that time or a Republican? Did you where where were you on the political spectrum while you were at Berkeley? I was absolutely a Republican. I am what you would describe as a as a Reagan baby. Okay. And those are the those are the people who were who were born in the late 50s, early 60s um, when. Uh, and, and growing up in California, I had Ronald Reagan as my governor. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I was used to uh, the conservative rhetoric, the limited government, you know, ideals, mm-hmm. the things that Ronald Reagan espoused. So when I graduated college in 83, I decided I want to go and work for his reelection in Washington, D.C. And I had majored in political science and international relations at, at Berkeley. Um, not the bastion of conservatism. No. But, uh, but, um, I stayed grounded by virtue of listening to my father and my mother at the dinner table, drinking, uh, white wine and tasting our Napa and Carmel Valley wines. And, um, my parents, my parents were a huge influence on me. So is that kind of what gave you the initial bug to get involved was just dinner table conversations with your family? 
I think that it was that, and I'll tell you a quick story. Hopefully it won't be too long. But um, Ronald Reagan in 1983 invited the Queen of England over to the United States for a state dinner. And not only did he host her and regale the uh, the Queen in Washington, D.C. at the White House, but he arranged for her to come out to the Reagan Ranch in California and from the and visit his kind of soul, you know, his, his the place that he found the most solace and, mm-hmm. and comfort. And that trip included another state dinner on the West Coast at, in San Francisco at the De Young Museum. And as a college senior, I, my name was on a list because I had volunteered on some Republican campaigns. Um, I got a call from the White House advance uh, office saying, would you come and advance the trip? We need a bunch of volunteers to drive in the motorcade and to help out. Uh, and I did that as a senior in college. And that was the bug that bit me. Oh, really? I drove in the motorcade of Ronald Reagan's, you know, trip from San Francisco airport up to San Francisco. And I was actually the driver for Nancy Reagan's hairdresser. Oh, and my gosh. wow, was that important? Uh, you know, when you are out on the tarmac in your car, my little Toyota was part of the motorcade. And this mm-hmm. is, you know, this is the 80s. So we right. didn't have big black, you know, cruisers and, right. and forerunners and things like that. I was driving my own car, but I was part of the motorcade. And 101 in San Francisco was closed down. And I had Nancy Reagan's hairdresser. And that was a pretty important thing, you know, because yeah. she needed to have her hair done before the queen came over for dinner yeah so um i met all of the advance uh team and i fell in love with that aspect of it the behind the scenes Uh kind of aspect of politics i hadn't yet gotten into the true policy work that i'm doing now but for me that was the the start of 30 years in politics now Mm -hmm. or 35 years and uh Moved to Washington one week after I graduated from college, got a job for the Reagan Bush 84 campaign, mm-hmm. and I was off to the races. So what, is, what was it about, I mean, you, you kind of said that you were, even though you, you were exposed to very liberal environments uh, in, in Berkeley um, and probably growing up in California to begin with, even though Reagan was governor at the time. Yeah, governor was, at the time, I guess, right? Well, pre- was, president, yeah, okay. What was there? Is there a policy position that really kind of you obviously you you believe in limited our our talking points of limited government and free markets? But um, what is it about those things that you feel like is best not just for our country, but 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 why are those women's rights issues? Yeah. Yeah. I guess my thought is and, and if I had to pinpoint one um, one perspective, and it's not really a, an issue set or policy prescription, but one perspective is that I've always believed in just individual responsibility. Um, you know, if you I've always I've always worked I, at 15. I had my first job. I've, I've loved you know, earning money and having my own money and being Mm -hmm. able to spend my own money. And to that end, I think an individual responsibility is really an important element. And if you have that one core value, then everything kind of flows from that. Mm -hmm. You know, if if you believe in individual responsibility, then by nature, by very nature of that uh, comment, you're not going to think that government is a really good answer to right. any of your issues. Right. If you think that, you know, I, if you think about health care, if you talk about health care as it relates to individual responsibility, well, take care of your body, take care of your health. I know that it, that's not as easy as it sounds for a lot of people, but 
I would say preemptive measures in healthcare are more important than after the fact uh, yeah. care, which mm -hmm. are always more expensive. So likewise for education, you know, a lifelong learning. Newt Gingrich taught me that you should be a student for life. You know, always um, continue to read books, continue to learn, continue to grow, continue to experience new things so that you can have that context for the things that you're working mm -hmm. on. Um, and individual liberty was also, or, or responsibility was also something that, that Ronald Reagan espoused um, when he was president. It was, it was free trade and individual, individual responsibility. I don't like some of the things that I'm seeing now around all this victimhood and identity politics. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm not a victim. I can stand up. I get up every day and I do whatever it is that I think is right for, for myself, for my family, and for whatever I'm working on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so you, ha you have two kids. I do. You had them somewhere along the way. <laughs> um, you know, I had a, a county commissioner tell me once that uh, you had to get to women before they had kids if you want them to run for office or want them to get really involved in politics. Um, and, uh, and my initial reaction was to be uh, you know, oh my gosh, I can't believe she would say that because of course women with kids can are capable of anything. But of course, I ran for office before I had kids and um, and I didn't know any different because I was forced into it. I had two kids while I was on Austin City Council and I didn't have any other choice but to figure out how to get childcare until my meeting ended at 2 a.m. in the morning. But that is, it is a real struggle that a lot of women face um, kind of getting into this profession, whether it's professionally or, or, or in a volunteer capacity. Um, that they f that a lot of women's first job is to take care of their to take care of their family. How did you how how was that for you um, having young kids when while working in politics? Was was there anything that was difficult or any barriers you had to overcome and, and what did you do about it? Well, um, I, in fact, in the 1994 election, uh, when I was working for Newt and we were doing the contract with America, I was pregnant. I was seven months pregnant and I was mm. getting on and off little, little small private planes with Newt flying around to special elections, you know, waddling along like a pregnant yes, woman does. I, I know the feeling. Um, yeah. So, um, I, you know, I just didn't see it as a barrier. Uh, but I would also say um, that I was really lucky because I had a husband who supported me mm -hmm. and who backed me up. And in fact, when we took over, when the Republicans took over the House in 1994, I was I was intimately involved with the contract with America and everything that Newt Gingrich was doing. So um, for the first time in 40 years, Republican had the majority in the House. It was not in my lifetime, certainly not in any of anyone's lifetime that, that was around in politics at the time. And when we figured out that we were going to probably do that, my husband quit his job. Mm. And I already had one, I had a son, uh, Sam, who's now 27, and I had, I was pregnant with my daughter, Britt. And um, I gave birth in January after we took over the house and had a, a very short maternity leave of about two or three days and then right, went right back into really? the speaker's office. And, um, you know, my only caveat was, Newt, I can only work late one night a week and then I got to go home. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I did that. I still, I still try to, when my kids were at home, they're now both grown adults and working um, and uh, earning a living, but um, even when they were when they were home and in high school, I tried to only go out one night a week mm -hmm. on the weeknights. You know, meaning going out, meaning have a work meeting or a, right. a, a work dinner or something like right. that. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, I can't imagine a maternity leave of two or three days. <laughs> Ooh, I guess, I mean, I guess you just, it was just the nature of the, of the situation you were in and, and you powered through it. It was pretty historic. It was, you know, it was an amazing time. And I think that... Um, you didn't want to miss it. You didn't want to miss yeah. it. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. So so now, uh, I'm, I know I'm jumping around in your timeline, but uh, fast forwarding to today, you are uh, not only, n- not only do you lead um, ALEC, but you're also involved in White House Fellows Program. So tell us about that. I was asked to serve in another capacity um, for the White House, and I've always loved um, job placement. I said I sh- I'm a wannabe HR director uh, mm-hmm. or you know headhunter. I've always loved putting people in jobs and seeing them thrive and seeing them grow. Um, so um, when they tapped me to serve as a commissioner for the White House Fellows Program, it was a perfect fit. Because we serve, of course, at the at the pleasure of the president. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a, a full uh, board of commissioners. And once a year, we, we're the final selection process for the White House Fellows Program. Uh, the White House Fellows Program is kind of an elite... Um, you know, business rotation program within the administration. Mm-hmm. And it's nonpartisan. Um, there's no nothing political about it. These people apply. They get appointed into different um, slots. One of the White House fellows from last year worked for the vice president and, and was with him, you know, every step of the way, every everything he did every day. One was working in the Office of Innovation for Jared Kushner. Um, one was over at DOD and, you know, and so on. Um, they serve for a year and then and within that year they could rotate in and out of a different agency if they had a certain expertise if they were good with budgets and numbers Mm -hmm. they would go to treasury uh, you know and help work in that area as well so um, the White House fellows for me is kind of the perfect uh, complement to my day job which is you know has nothing to do with placing people in jobs right it, it has to do with incentivizing and really energizing a staff and so anybody can apply for that. The people who should apply are um, really high-performing, uh, impressive. What I guess yeah. they've accomplished something uh, personally or professionally that's a really unique them, and outstanding. Yeah, a lot of them have been um, already successful in uh, either a business career or a military career. Okay, um, but not necessarily politics. Not, I mean, you do, not this at is all something politics. that you don't have no. to have any kind of. I don't think that some of them may have a, a you know a political aspiration down the road, mm-hmm. but you don't um, you don't become a White House fellow if you want to run for office necessarily because your exposure is really um, in the one office that you're working for for the year. Um, you you do meet and there's classes and there's courses and then there's meet and greets for all the people within the administration throughout the year. So I guess there's some exposure there. But my sense of the applicants is these are people who want to continue to serve the country or serve their country in the in, in, as a as a beginning step. Um, they are anywhere from I would say twenty eight to thirty five. Okay. So they're not right out of school. They're okay. not right out of college. Uh, certainly, I don't think I don't think any of our applicants were were younger than twenty eight, twenty nine, mm-hmm. maybe thirty. Um, a lot of them are military. And they're on a rotation or they're coming back from serving abroad and they want to have a, a kind of a nice landing in, in Washington, D.C. and kind of see what, what the, how the other side um, kind of works in an office yeah. environment. Yeah. So, um, but it's been, it's just been really, really 
amazing the kind of individuals that come across this program. You are humbled and in awe of these people that mm -hmm. have been to Afghanistan, have been coming, fighting for the country, who have who have developed new business products and are you know are are innovative entrepreneurs. And so it's it's high achievers. I right. would say it's it's absolutely high achievers, not necessarily. Um, the um, you know the the highly educated in that sense, and I don't mean to say they're not educated. I, I'm just saying uh, it's not all Ivy League people. Right. It is just people who have been born to serve, who have a commitment to the country, and who really want to give back. That uh, hopefully that appeals to somebody listening out there who might not have known about it before, who can go look it up. So for that person, what is your advice about? Uh, submitting the strongest application to get chosen as a White House fellow. I think that if you are genuine and sincere about your desire to serve and and um, and participate in this thing called democracy and this thing called government, that you should apply. Um, and in fact, many of the applicants that we had this year had applied years before. So if you don't make it the first year, um, you know, try again, and and maybe not even the next year, but but go back and go back to work, go back to to your um, vocation, and then try again when. When you're a little bit older mm -hmm. uh, and and we even i think there was one applicant this year that came back seven years later wow and and made it into the program really okay yeah well that that um what a cool kind of other hat for you to to be wearing in addition to your your day job and everything that you do with the state legislators across the country i mean any other i guess as we're kind of wrapping up here any other advice for uh women who feel um who, who don't know who don't know kind of how to take that first step to to get involved they might be frustrated about the political situation they see going on they might feel uh, uh smothered by uh their social media and not, don't really know where to turn but also might be busy with their full-time jobs might be busy raising kids um and don't know really how to how to even begin making an impact in their in their communities. What what advice do you have for them? There are two organizations that I am affiliated with now. Um, one is called Winning for Women. And um, you can go to their website. You can check out what they're doing. Their, their primary focus is getting women to run for office mm -hmm. and for federal office, so either Congress or Senate. And I've, I've been playing the role of kind of identifying women who would consider running and, and putting them mm -hmm. into the system. Um, that's a it's a wonderful nationwide network, and they've built up quite a, a good um, database and website, um, kind of a la the Emily's List okay. on the on the other side, um, and then the other organization that I'm involved with and on the board of is Right Now, oh, okay. and that's um, an organization that is specifically designed to bring younger women into the fold, and not necessarily for those younger women to run for office yet, but the way that it was structured originally, um, and all the credit goes to Marlene Colucci in, in Washington D.C. who kind Kind of got this up and running, but we older women would um, write a check and, and support the organization with a thousand dollar contribution, let's say, mm -hmm. and that would provide the funds to create an atmosphere or an event recognizing an elected official, Lynn Cheney, Catherine McMorris Rogers. Um, 
other women. And that way the younger girls could come to the event for 50 or $25 and we would set the thresholds according to what the event was going to okay. be. But that, you know, when you first get to Washington DC and you're right out of college, you can't write a check for $250 no. or, you know, or let alone a thousand. Right. Um, so we wanted to have a, a way for these young Hill staffers to attend and mm -hmm. participate and go to these events. So we figured if, if 10 of us or 15 of us are writing a thousand dollars, then these girls and, and young women can come in for $50 and enjoy the exact same uh, kind of benefits of membership. And so that's exactly what we did. We had the founders level and then we had the members. And in fact, after a few years, um, we turned over the entire operation to the younger women. So they run the organization okay. now and we're just we're just the old founders. <laughs> uh, we write the checks and and these younger women um, who are just wonderful, wonderful women um, are running the organization, making the decisions, you know, putting on the events, identifying other women. And the, and the goal is to ultimately support women who run for Congress. But now we've got this network of young women all over D.C. that we can call upon to get involved if there ever is the need for them to volunteer or work on a campaign or something like that. I love so that. So it's a, it's a terrific program. Okay, so that was uh, winning for women winning for women and, and right now right now mm -hmm. okay um i i think that those sounds like really great organizations both of them so thank you for all that you are doing to kind of shepherd a new a, a new generation uh, into the realm of realm of politics and allowing us to learn from the path that you've already trailblazed. So, well, we it's my pleasure. I love being here, and I'm I'm just happy to see you doing this podcast. Uh, what a what a terrific what a terrific way to continue your your engagement in politics. Yeah, yeah it's 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 been good, and um, I love having I love hearing all these all the stories from all of the influential women. Who I've met along the way. So thank, thank you, you, for you so me. much, Lisa. I appreciate it. Thank you. Do you have a story or a question you want answered? Send me a note at ellen at stepuppodcast.com. Also, give Step Up a rating and review in Apple Podcasts so we can reach and inspire more women. Don't forget to subscribe. I'm Ellen Troxclair. Thanks for listening. Now go advocate like a woman.